0: And before you know it, we are back again for another edition of our weekly podcast where we highlight topics in the world of law. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell, and pleased to have the opportunity to talk with you again and and share more information with you via the weekly series where we kind of try to maneuver our way through a wide range of legal topics from week to week, sometimes addressing issues for you or your family, other times looking at topics that may impact your business. Now, today we're going to rely on the input of an experienced family law attorney, as I'll be welcoming Emile Elkast to the show. Emile, a senior associate at Lavelle Law Limited. In today's conversation, we'll take a look at how child support is calculated here in Illinois, and perhaps uh, part of the dialogue will include a review of how to deal with a parent whose primary source of income is generated on a cash basis, as that may be a bit unique. So we've got a lot to do. Let's get rolling. First of all, uh, Emile, nice to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back. Um,
0: when there is a custody case, um, uh, you know, divorce, uh, perhaps just a, a parental custody case where people haven't been married, do the courts follow a specific formula for determining child support amounts, or is each and every case unique?
1: Um, no, there are um, there is a set formula that's been enacted by statute. So the legislator has determined that child support is calculated on uh, you know a certain format, so sort to of speak. And it all, of course, is dependent on how many children the couple has. So basically, the first step would be to uh, designate one parent as the residential custodian. So one person has custody. And once that's determined, then you go to the next step, which is calculating child support. So the person that does not have residential custody, you know, that person is uh, the payor, and that person uh, pays child support to the parent that has custody based on a percentage of what we call net income. Um, and net income, yeah, there's a definition that we can get into, but uh, just for purposes of this question, um, you know. so depending on the number of kids. So if you have one child, you're paying 20%, two children's 28%, uh, three children's 32%, if you have four, that's 40 percent, and then uh, five is 45, and then if you have six or more, then you're paying no less than 50 percent of your net income.
0: Okay. Okay. So, uh, sort of a, a model there that can can be followed. Now, you mentioned net income there, and I I, I find that interesting. You know, as I've learned from many of your colleagues at LaBelle Law in previous podcasts dealing with tax issues when we talk about that particular topic. You know, the definition of income can be, it seems to me, construed a lot of different ways. Uh, when we talk about a custody case and you refer to net income, what process is used to evaluate and define what income is?
1: Right. So, you know, net income for purposes of a family law matter or divorce is completely different than what the IRS would say is net income. So for divorce purposes, what you're looking at or what the court looks at is, um, you know, what is the net income from all sources, and what they'll allow you to do. So basically, if somebody gets paid, so you look at his gross amount, for example, and you know we have a guy that makes a gross amount of 5000 a month. To determine his net income, uh, the courts will allow deductions to be made. So for example, if he's paying federal tax income, or excuse me, if he's paying any federal income tax, you deduct that from his gross income. So they'll allow deductions for any federal tax payments you're making, any state income tax payments you're making, any deductions that are taken off for uh, social security, um, any union dues that you may have to pay as part of your employment, uh, or any sort of mandatory retirement contributions like a pension plan, or, you know, not a 401k which is voluntary, but you know something that's mandatory, um, and then they'll also allow you to deduct if you're paying for uh, dependent or individual, you know, health insurance premiums. Um, But other than that, there really isn't much left that the court will allow you to deduct. Um, The one thing that's sort of a gray area is they'll allow you to deduct any expenditures that you have to make um, if those expenditures were made to generate income. For example, if, uh, let's say you've got Joe, John Doe, who's a truck driver, and he's paying out-of-pocket money for gas, for uh, motels, um, dining, and those are expenses that are not reimbursed by his employer, um, he'd be allowed to deduct those uh, because you know, he needs to drive cross-country, and these are necessities that he would need to generate that income. So once we have all those deductions taken out of somebody's gross, that's what we, whatever that number comes out to be, that's what somebody's net income is. And then you apply those percentages that I just talked about to determine what the child support amount would be.
0: And, and I don't want to get off on a separate tangent here. Maybe there's a whole other conversation, but just very briefly, um, I suppose it's not uncommon for, you've been using the example, of the father being the one who's going to pay that the mother has custody, uh, not uncommon for the mother to be working and have equal or even greater income than the father in some cases these days. Does that get factored in, or is it strictly taken as a percentage of the of the payer?
1: Uh, you know, sometimes, in most cases, it's not factored in. It's It's really just determined on you know, the res- who's labeled the residential custodian, and then also what type of visitation the couple has. So, you know, in, in some cases where there's almost an equal sharing of the children, so somebody gets them half the week and the other parent gets them the other half, in those cases, yes, uh, courts are inclined to look at both parties' incomes to determine whether child support should be paid. But um, but you know, that type of visitation schedule is not common. Usually it's, you know, somebody that has alternating weekends and maybe one or two evenings during the week. Um, and, and so in, in those cases where somebody's got your sort of typical visitation schedule, uh, in those cases, you know, if, if the custodial parent is making 500000 a year and the other parent is making 100000 a year, uh, you know, most courts will say, you know, she has no obligation to pay, so we're not going to look at her income. We're only going to look at yours, even though that person would make, make you know, Five times less than what the other parent makes interesting okay
0: now let's let's talk about the uh, the parent who who is going to be paying the uh, the support um, there's plenty of people out there I'm sure who who perhaps work on commission or are in seasonal businesses things that uh, might be impacted by you know different conditions from year to year uh, as well as people who just might change jobs um, do the agreements in terms of support do they get updated if the person paying support has Income fluctuations up or down on an annual basis
1: um, they do, but they don't um, it, child support doesn't change automatically, so one or the other so if the payer for some reason now has a reduction of pay, you would expect that person to come into court and ask for a modification to you know pay lesser support and vice versa so if, if now this person you know year number two is making susten- substantially more than what he made last year when the calculation was uh, determined, you know, the the person receiving those funds, the payee, would most likely come into court and seek a modification to increase the child support. So it's not uncommon for, you know, whether a child support agreement, a settlement agreement, or like a divorce judgment, they'll usually have language in there that says that the parties are to exchange either tax returns, W-2s, or any sort of, Uh, documents that show proof of income for the previous year, and the reason we do that is so that you can monitor the other person's income, and if it looks like they're making substantially more than they did the previous year, then it would be our recommendation. There's a substantial change, and therefore, you should go into court and seek a modification to increase the support.
0: Um, We're talking to Emil Alacas of Lavelle Law. Um, Great conversation going. He brings a number of years of family law practice to our conversation, and he's uh, certainly generous with his time and information here as we talk about child support payments, how they're calculated here in Illinois. On a related related topic, Emil just posted a new article on prenups this past week at LaBelleLaw.com. It's uh, a great resource for information, including uh, articles like that and, and all of our past podcasts uh, featuring Emil and, and any of his colleagues. Uh, certainly well worth taking uh, some time to visit uh, labelllaw.com when, when time permits, now, Emil, I mentioned it at the open that we might touch on scenarios in which the person paying child support is predominantly a cash wage earner. Um, you know, there's still plenty of occupations out there or people who work under those conditions. Does that complicate the process for you as an attorney when you're trying to uh, reach a uh, settlement?
1: It does. You know, those types of cases are, are a little bit more tricky um, because you've got a situation where he's not what we call like a W-2 earner. So, you know, we're not getting... All documentation from an employer um, in terms of what this person has earned, so what you have to do in those types of situations is you basically have to get into you know what we call like forensics so sort to of speak i mean you 're looking at other documents other than this guy 's tax return because the tax return may not have the complete accurate picture of what this person's earning, and so what the courts will do and what most attorneys do is look at bank statements, look at deposits that a person's making, look at credit card statements, look at uh, 401K statements, you know, basically you're looking at all financial transactions to see whether there are deposits coming in that are not accounted for, Um, and, you know, so so that gets a little bit murkier in terms of the amount of investigation you have to do to try to calculate a base number, and those can get difficult. A lot of times, too, what a court will do is if somebody's income is just so difficult to determine because this guy makes, uh, you know, earns income in cash only, the courts can look at lifestyle. So if this person is earning cash and reports on his income tax returns that he only made like 28000 in a given year, the courts will look at other things. So they'll look at what he's paying in his mor- in, on his mortgage, what he's paying on his car payments, what type of lifestyle does this guy live. And based on the assets that the person may own, based on their spending on a monthly basis, the court can attribute an income to that person. So basically they can say, look, if this guy is paying $1,500 in rent, has a car payment of $500, owns a motorcycle, and has about you know $15,000 in a savings account, this is the type of person that would make Typically around sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year, and the courts can do that. They have the discretion to attribute somebody's income if the court makes a finding that you know calculating his income is just so difficult to do. Um, you know, if somebody's income is so difficult to determine, the courts can look at other factors and give somebody basically what they think his income should be. Um, otherwise, what the courts can also do is look back, so they can look at an average of two or three years of income and determine that, okay, so in the last three years, he averaged about 60000 a year, then we'll say that this person is now earning 60000 a year and we'll calculate support based on those numbers.
0: We've been talking about income. We've got about a minute or so left here, but I want to touch on... Things that maybe classified, I would classify it outside of income, which is perhaps this person you know holds a lot of assets in you know real estate holdings or other types of property, stock. Um, maybe they take a very small income. They have their own business, so they, they only report a small income, but um, uh, they they obviously have value. They're building value and uh, equity other places. Does that get factored in as well?
1: It, it does. It does. And again, that, that's more along the lines of lifestyle. So if the court sees that there are all these asset holdings and this is a person that owns his own um, business and, and pays himself X amount a year, the court can look at other things other than just pure income. And, 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 you know, So they can look at other things other than his W-2 and his income tax returns.
0: And then real quickly, um, last question here. If someone's in this situation, obviously it's going to be very emotional, very difficult for them, and, and they may just want to get it over with. Um, what do you recommend to your clients in terms of what things we should be looking at, red flags, to be concerned about before you say, yeah, I'll take that agreement?
1: Um, you know, a, a huge red flag is somebody's income. If it if it down, if it it goes downwards, you know, you'll see that a lot. So a divorce case gets filed, and all of a sudden this guy makes a lot less than he did last year. So look for downward income generation. Look at cash deposits. um, I mean, those are some of the basic things that you would look at, uh, but you definitely want to see bank statements. You definitely want to see credit card statements, one k statements, and obviously his tax returns to to get a better picture. Um, and, and that's a good way to start in terms of looking at things that may not look, you know, kosher, so to speak.
0: hmm Okay, well, uh, boy, we've filled up our time here, and I want to thank Emil for joining us. Um, Always a pleasure to have him along. He he makes for a great guest here on the Conversations and uh, very helpful in uh, contributing to the series, so many thanks to him. Thank you for listening as well. Uh, Let me again encourage you to spend some time at LavelleLaw.com, learn more about the firm, and certainly take advantage of the many resources there to assist in answering your legal questions. I'm sure you'll find plenty of uh, assistance there. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Chicago's Legal Latte. If you have any questions or topics for a future episode, please call Lavelle Law Limited at 847-705-7555 or email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com.